Welcome to At the Point of a Knife. I'm your host, Eric Navaretti. Each episode, I sit down with the writers, producers, directors behind the modern era of horror and explore their inspirations, setbacks, and what it really takes to make your favorite films. Today, I'm interviewing writer, producer, and actor A.J. Bowen. He's been part of some of the most memorable indie horror films of the past 10 years, including The House of the Devil. A horrible way to die. And Hatchet 2. His newest movie, The Frontier, is a pulpy neo-noir crime thriller and is currently available on Netflix and through video on demand. Let's check out some of the trailer to your next and then hop into it. What is that? This is Eric Navaretti, and I have AJ Bowen with me here today. Hello. Thank you for coming in. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm very well. I have been a fan of yours, actually, for quite some time. You're the one. I'm the one. I'm the first one. (laughs) I saw back in early screening, I think before it was officially released, I saw The Signal back in 06. Remember watching that movie, distinctly thinking, I want to see everything else this guy's been in. <laughs> At the time, there was really only like one other I think that was, that was, it was it. You had one other title, I think, before that. Yeah. But I've, I've always been really happy to see you showing up in other films that I've rented. Sometimes with glasses and beard, sometimes without, sometimes heavier. Mm-hmm. Somehow you grow a beard and you get rid of it and people can't recognize you at all. They're like, you're a chameleon. You're such a serious actor. That was actually something that I was surprised by today. I was going through your entire filmography mm-hmm. again and realizing that there were actually a few movies of yours that I had seen, even having known who you were, right? There were still movies that you were in. I didn't know you were in them. One of them was House of the Devil. Oh, you didn't know that was me? I didn't. I don't know what it was. I didn't recognize that you was, in that one. That was pretty much... That was the next movie, I think, that came out after Signal that I worked on. I worked on a few mm-hmm. in between that are still very impossible to find because of mm. um, varying degrees of quality. But, okay. um, but House of the Devil was one that... Signal's kind of the reason that I worked on it. Because okay. Ty saw it, and Ty and Jacob, the guy that produced it, and um, wrote and directed the second transmission of the right. middle part that focuses on my character. Mm-hmm. Um which is actually my favorite transmission. Thank you. It's mine too because I'm a narcissist. Um, <laughs> they had sort of become friends at a, at um, they'd met at like South by and one night we found out like when you do these film festivals at least way back then you don't meet anybody in LA mm-hmm. and you find out that when you're in Austin or you're in Park City or Toronto that you live like in some instances on literally the same street in Los Angeles somebody else so Mm -hmm. he told me there was this uh, director you know did I want to come up to hang out and I went up there and I felt bad for Jacob because he just sort of receded into silence as Ty and I started quoting 80s movies back and forth to each other (laughs) and the rest is history that's literally what happened we started quoting (laughs) we both found out that each other's favorite movie was Teen Wolf and then we were like then we fell in love and that was it so with Ty, mm-hmm. I, I've noticed you've worked with him a couple times now. You've mm-hmm. worked with Adam. I've read interviews with you where you say basically you you 
you primarily work with your friends. Yeah. I want to know a little bit more about that process because it seems like you have just a great working relationship with these people. How do you know when that's the, when that's taking off with someone, I guess, Um, what are you looking for? Well, it's, it's, it's impossible for me to sort of look at that sort of stuff objectively because you mentioned the signal Mm. and with the exception of maybe two or three people that Mm. worked on that, I grew up with everyone. Oh, wow. So we shot that movie in Atlanta over 10 days on a $50,000 budget. We didn't have what people are accustomed to having, even on micro indie films, we had nothing, and none of us were in the union yet. Mm-hmm. What we did have was each other, and we also had a shorthand, which is the only way. That and cashing in favors, we were able to make a movie like that in 10 days. Mm-hmm. So I had made one or two movies before, um, at least in the professional level. The signal was really informative to me about like how it's going to happen. You know, like We went back and shot in Atlanta, and then we ended up at Sundance not knowing anybody with it. And so I mistakenly thought that that's how all experiences were, you know, okay. there's like an ability to like, yes, there are three people that have a writing credit mm-hmm. on the movie, but there are like 12 people that really kind of worked on it together. Mm-hmm. You know, they wrote the script and then we go workshop it and start ripping out dialogue or changing things. Um, as you know, we start feeling the energy or the story starts going in another direction. So I kind of just assume that that's how it worked for everybody. Not realizing that mm. in film, typically, by the time you get done, it almost sounds cliche, but by the time you get done shooting the thing, you're usually ready to go back and actually do it right because you spend most of the time uh, figuring out how to communicate mm-hmm. with each other. And I didn't have that experience. When it came to Ty, we had become friends and were very interested in the same sorts of things, specifically the, like creating the same kind of content. Mm-hmm. Um, neither of us were really very interested in what was necessarily going on in contemporary horror at the time it's easier for a director to choose their path you know like what they're going to end up in because they're they are getting their movie made uh as an actor it was such dumb luck that i was the kid that grew up wanting to be in horror films Mm -hmm. and was always frustrated when i would see guys that were faking it you know they were like trying to use it as a skipping stone to something else you know Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas i grew up that was my favorite genre um and i couldn't get enough of it and all i wanted to do was be in horror movies i just wanted to be in jason lives so badly <laughs> so badly they shot that where i grew up and i, I went to camp where they shot the movie oh, wow. two weeks after they wrapped shooting it mm-hmm. and so it was just in my dna ty and i both had an interest in older stuff okay and he sent me one script to read as a friend and i read it and i gave him my thoughts on it and then he sent me another one and he was like this is the one we're actually getting ready to make and there's this role that i was going to play in it but I concerned that I I won't have time to like do it right, and I know you just played this heavy in the signal. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not too much this guy on the page, but would you want to come hang out in Connecticut, like six miles from New York, and um, shoot a movie mm-hmm. called House of the Devil? And I was like, yep, like, and I loved the script, and that was how I ended up working with Ty, and Ty and I had a shorthand, much like I did with my other friends on the right. signal. And that, and on also when you have just like similar sensibilities and also similar uh, types of work ethic about how we like to communicate with people on set, how we like to run a set, how we like things to go. Ty is one of the most compatible collaborators mm-hmm. I've ever had, and, and one of the only ones who I have complete trust with. Where if I'm doing something, like I remember specifically on Sacrament, we were, we were doing a thing and I was going one way and he kept telling me, you know, maybe not this. And I kind of, I was, I had a really strong converse opinion about it, but uh-huh. I stopped for a moment and I was like, well, it's Ty. So Ty has to be right. 
and he was mm-hmm. and that's really freeing as as an actor you know when like sort of crafting stuff you build a character and, and then they let you kind of run and he kind of keeps you on the right track if you start going too far into into your own head with something I think there's a misconception that we've worked together more than we actually have because hmm. we both were actors on your next so Tyreek what do you do uh, <clears throat> I'm a filmmaker is that right, oh, wow. that's right. Yeah, he's really oh, good. I don't think I know any filmmakers. That is oh, so There's not a lot of this out there. Interesting. Well, I've only made... I've Not on TV. I've only made one documentary. It was at the Cleveland Underground Film Festival, 2008. What is an underground film festival? Do they show them movies underground? No, no, no. And they're okay, getting yeah. this sort of idea for a while there that there was this group of people, and I think that, like... I heard this term thrown around for, like, a year. Amy Nicholson at LA Weekly at the time... Uh, decided to coin the word mumblegore. Yes. How do you feel about that? I fucking hate it. It's nonsensical. Right. You know, um, and also it takes away the concept of, of work, you know, or like pedagogy, like as though I'm just, we're all just kind of like farting around Mm. and going like, Oh, you know, let's talk about her flaccid penises. And then there's a chick that comes in, but we'll spray blood on her tits and then, uh, we'll sell it. And you know, Toronto will love us. And that's just not at all how it works. You know, I don't, I, I asked Joe uh-huh. how mumblecore works, and when I asked him that, he was pissed because I said the word mumblecore, and I didn't understand it at the time mm-hmm. um, because I was like, "You're you're buying a house because of mumblecore movies." I mean, what what do you have to be embarrassed about that? Right. I mean, who gives a shit what someone calls it? But kind of, I, I got it pretty quickly afterwards after because, that one was coined. Yeah, because I know him, and I know I know uh, Jay Duplass, and I know how hard they work on things. So it's it's a complete misnomer it's nonsensical and then the other thing is is that it created almost this sense of like a brat pack of people in the no budget genre world there's just there's an insular world you know like there's this insular world it's why i'm not on social media anymore that's really more something to say like 30 minutes from now but like there's this world that's created where people only take the information that makes them feel good or that agrees with their sensibilities mm-hmm. or that makes themselves appear more successful than they are and and they actively refuse uh, criticism or mm-hmm. looking sort of out of themselves into a bigger picture sense of the word. And, and I started noticing in a few years while I was on the inside of it where I kind of guess I knew the secret handshake and it just kind of felt fake. And I noticed that you could go to these festivals and people would just really speak in really glowing language about your work Mm. and then you would realize that nobody was watching it outside of that festival and Uh, so they can get the sense that they're much more important than they are this concept of self-importance and and i noticed that with these guys because the way it shook down um you know you're to get back on topic as you're talking about like ty and adam ty was my friend first mm -hmm. and what we had in common was cinema and not only that, we had similar upbringings and we had similar interests about what we would want to go to a movie to see. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we weren't really going to watch horror movies because there wasn't really con- new content, at least, because there wasn't stuff that was interesting us. So Ty wanted to make something that he would want to watch late night on cable. Sure. You know, that he would discover. So instead of it being like a throwback movie or like I've heard it called, or instead of it being like a period film, mm-hmm. there's a very fine line between that and what Ty was trying to do. and. What I think he did successfully was make a movie that seemed like it was just discovered. Yeah. But that it was actually made then. Mm-hmm. Not set then, but actually made then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, well, like, one of my very best friends in the world is um, is a wonderful filmmaker named Amy Simons. And um, mm-hmm. 
and we were close friends. You know, she's one of my wife's best friends and she would stay at our house with us when she was in Los Angeles. And these groups of people, yes, me and Ty were horror guys, but we were no different in terms of our writing or what our interests were than like Amy and Swanberg. And we all kind of knew each other mm -hmm. and those people that I was interested in working with. And then, uh, one day I got a phone call from my buddy, Evan Katz. And he said that he had this friend who was from Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I think he said that because I'm from Georgia. Oh, okay. um, so he was like, Hey, it's a fellow dude, you know, give him a shot. He said that he and, uh, and this guy, uh, had been making an anthology movie called date rape mm. and that they needed to do one more part. Right. Um, and was wondering if I would watch it and if I was interested in like collaborating on the final part of this anthology with them. And I was like, sure, send it, send it to me in the mail. And he said, also he's getting ready to shoot a movie and his lead actor just had to drop out. Um, and he would love it if you would read the script. Mm -hmm. And see what you thought about it. And I'd, I'd never, uh, I'd never heard about him. I was like, sure, send it to me. And so this is a, a horrible, horrible way, way to die. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and for me, really, like when people ask me about you know like working with Adam a lot, mm -hmm. you know, it really boils down to this one thing specifically for me. So I got this disc in the mail. My wife was like, "You've got mail, honey." And I was like, "Open it up. What is it?" And she brings me up this DVD R that in Sharpie says date rape movie parts one, two, and four. And I was like, well, shit, of course. Uh, this seems like really appropriate. And mm. so I put it on and it was one of those things where it was like instantly, maybe 25 seconds into it, yeah. I hit pause and I called Evan and I was like, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this before. I'm absolutely down. And he was like, do you read the script yet? And I was like, no, I'll read it. So I sat down and I read the script to A Horrible Way to Die and I hated it. Okay. Um, which is to say nothing about its quality. Sure. Um, I am allergic to nihilism. Okay. So in terms of like my interest as a, as what both a viewer is like a fan of cinema and also the sort of things that I, I want to make nihilism to me is sort of like the opposite of my philosophy mm -hmm. about what I don't, I don't go to the movies for that. Sure. Um, and I don't want to spend my time making, that. making that, mm -hmm. uh, the cost to my, Emotional happiness would <laughs> right, be too right. great. And specifically, I really didn't like the character of Derek Terrell. Okay. And in the script, he was like, almost like he was so, it was so uh, over the top, you know, like almost twirling the mustache. He, hmm. he got off on killing people. He would threaten them that he was going to kill them. And then he would kill them like really violently. It was really gross, mm -hmm. really gory, really violent movie. And I, I've kind of felt like between Signal and House of the Devil, I'd, I'd done that. You know, mm -hmm. it was like I gave this one guy pathos and made the argument that he maybe he was just crazy. This other guy was like, he's just a really he's really excited about bringing Satan into the world. And I sure. worked really hard to spin that into like a childlike fantasy for the guy because it's a shortcoming me as a performer that I'm trying to find a way to make everybody that I play kind of sympathetic to the audience. I don't have the mm. courage. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to find it, but I don't have the courage as a performer sure. to go in and just try to make somebody as unlikable as possible. Sure. I'm always trying to figure out a way to, to humanize the person and sort yeah. of make them a little bit more relatable, which is tough when you're talking about serial killers. I've always found, like, even when you're playing a bad guy, that maybe I, I don't necessarily think that the character is sympathetic, but there's definitely something hopefully, that feels genuine or real humanity. about them. Like, like, we, yeah. like, where I was coming from was like, I told Adam, you know, I was like, I don't know how to get on the phone with this guy because I'm going to tell him yes to date rape movie and I'm going to tell him no to this one called A Horrible Way to Die mm -hmm. because in that script, there's a scene in the final movie where Garrick is driving the car and there's a girl mm -hmm. in the car with him and she's like, please just let me go. They go through a roadblock and she's cool and he's like, I will. 
just let's just just let me think about this and then it cuts to later you've seen you see him outside of the car and he's clearly killed her and in the script he never he's never very kind to her and she has a baby Mm. and he picks the baby up and stabs the baby repeatedly in the face and i was like i can't get behind that like i can't do that um I don't like movies that and I'm not I'm not remotely moral and amoral, but I still don't want to see a kid with a gun in his face. Sure, sure. Uh, I didn't want to like stab a baby in the face. I didn't see the point. So I got on the phone with Adam, and you know, I told him I love date rape movie. Please, I want to I want to put that on IMDb. Date rape movie, please. But I don't think I can do anything mm. with this character in a horrible way. Because I knew when you've done the movies that I had, I was like, mm. I know this is the part they want me to play. And he was like, Well, what was it about it that bothered you? And I was like. Well, just in terms of like compatibility, like I, I can't do anything with it. Um, mm-hmm. I think you need somebody else. And he was like, what would you do with it? And I am, you know, I'm from theater and I'm a writer. And I, for me, scripts are up until that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, scripts were always Bible. They were the text. And I didn't change one word or one piece of punctuation. You know, mm-hmm. it was hard to give me. I have a background in improv. Which is another thing that frustrates me about the mumblecore, mumblecore thing. Right. Um, as though we're just like, what movie do you want to make today? Like, you know, hmm. just like, whoa, whoa, occur to me. Because um, that's not how it worked for us. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant what I would do with it because the script already exists and you guys are getting ready to shoot. He goes, well, what would you want to see with that character? Hmm. And I said, well, I would, first of all, I would like him to actually love Sarah, Amy's character in the movie. And I noticed in the script, Sarah's an alcoholic. And, and in my mind, it'd be more interesting to see a guy that doesn't want to be doing the thing that he's doing, but it's a compulsion that he can't control. Hmm. And he also can't go to 12 steps for it. At the time, I was becoming pretty self-aware, not to turn this into a, an after-school special, but I, I, I was becoming pretty self-aware that I was an alcoholic. And I'd be more interested in that story. And a guy that desperately doesn't want to do what he's doing, but he can't get help for it because no one's going to go, I understand. Well, why don't you come in here? We're all just like, you know, like right. AA for serial killers. Right. And uh, I was like, what if he was like, has a lot of guilt and shame and remorse or he can't stop? And that coupled with realizing that we had no money... Um, meant that all of the violence that was in the script needed to be implied with the exception of a couple things. Yeah. So we pretty quickly jumped to the idea of like, okay, well, you won't see what he's actually doing. You'll just see him afterwards and sort of the emotional fallout, like someone that had relapsed again. Right. And Adam was interested in that. And, uh, and then he tricked me. He said, well, um, I don't know if you know Amy Simons or Joe Swanberg, but they're in the movie. And I was like really surprised to hear that Amy was in it because, mm-hmm. you know, I self-identify as a feminist and she does too, certainly. And I was like, well, I don't know about this guy stabbing babies and the way that he's treating women. He kills right, exclusively right. women initially, minus a couple of cops. And, uh, well, okay, can you give me a day to think about it? And I got off the phone with him and I immediately called Simons and was like, what is this movie that you're doing? And she told me and she was like, he's really cool. He's done some experimental stuff. It's super no budget. There's going to be a, a crew of three. So the idea was we're going to go there and while keeping all of Simon's beats, mm-hmm. the intent behind a lot of it was going to, to very likely change. And so it was like a purely collaborative experience. And I had never done something quite like that before where we kind of, we would shoot. And then at the end of the day, like Adam and Amy and I would go get dinner and we would discuss the next day and like what it was versus what we wanted out of it. Mm-hmm. And we would kind of workshop over dinner and we would start off with like really long takes because both of us have a heavy background in, in improv. We start off one take would be 12 minutes. Then we get it to 10 and to eight and to six and to one minute. Essentially we wow. get it down. And then, you know, it was a really positive and sort of life changing experience for me as a performer. Um, because I had done a movie just before because I thought I wasn't going to make another movie. 
I thought, I thought I was going to, I thought I was like, okay, well, this is the run that I had. This was his, I got to do some movies. I got to go mm-hmm. to Sundance. Like you could go to Best Buy and buy a movie that I'm, that I'm in. So that was cool. But it had kind of dried up after House of the Devil. And I was like, I guess it's time to move on. Because I was such a huge fan of horror films, specifically in the 80s, when Adam Green called me about doing Hatchet 2, I was like, well, that's not my type of movie at all as a performer and, and not as a viewer. But the opportunity to work with Kane Hodder and Tom Holland and, and Danny Harris, I'm not going to pass this up. You know, something to tell the grandkids about. So I did that and thought that was it. And literally I wrapped picture on that. And the very next day was when all of this started transpiring with Wingard. Mm-hmm. So that sort of really reinvigorated me and showed me a different path for like how you can make stuff. Two very... Uh, wildly different. Wildly different. Wildly, yeah. wildly different. And the execution was wildly different. Mm-hmm. You know? There's just a completely different approach. And so we got that movie done. And it got into the Toronto Film Festival. I went there with it. And for me, you know, I didn't think I was going to get another role that had as much meat on it as uh, Signal. Because mm-hmm. there's one of the benefits of when someone writes a part for you that right. knows your, what you can and can't do. There's so many different angles to Lewis Denton. You know, I'm not going to get to do that again. Mm-hmm. So with Garrick, really got to kind of put a stamp on the character in, in a way that wasn't pre-existing. My approach to the character kind of created the character together with Simon and Adam and even Amy and Joe. Mm-hmm. And it was a really enriching experience for me. It did all right. People really didn't like it because it was so dark. Um, mm. It wasn't really the feel-good hit of the summer. But that, for me, yeah. I loved it. This is my favorite movie that I've been in. It's It's got a lot of integrity behind it. It's not an easy watch, but it's got a lot of ideas. And that was why I did Your Next, because it was... Like the same people, except with a much bigger budget. We were like 80 grand for A Horrible Way to Die, and we were about a million all in for your next. Mm -hmm. And so when I heard that, you know, exactly one year later, it was going to be me and Amy and Joe playing siblings this time. You know, and yeah, that's, you know, that's great. like let's go back and, and do this again, and then they're even going to bring Ty in, who's friends with all of us. So I did that, and I think that movie was the one that gave people the impression that there was like this. Breakfast Club, right? Know, like, sort of thing. It's a little unprofessional. What? What's that? What you just said. What was that? About what? You said it's unprofessional. Is there something else you wanted to say to me? No, I was just agreeing with you. You weren't agreeing with me. I was. I mean, I, what did he? I thought he said it was unprofessional. Don't look at her. I'm right here. Crispin. What? We're having a dinner here. Can we go back for a moment? Yeah. Um, I, I was a little bit surprised when you said that you were hesitant to get involved with A uh, Horrible Way to Die, mm-hmm. but that you you saw some of the footage for Date Rape, which is now... <laughs> what fun we were having. What fun we were having. It's kind of a lost movie. I guess I'm surprised about that because I know of it by, by reputation and by reading some of the write-ups from the few people that have seen it. And it's obviously incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, it's about, it's about yeah. rape. What, what was the challenge behind it that I guess you saw that, that made me want to do it? Yeah. Um, viewpoint. Okay. Um, aesthetics. The best thing that I can liken it to is like music. I'm a, I'm a former musician. I was, I was a classically trained musician hmm. and there were a lot of rules in that. And so I swore that, and I wasn't able since it's classical, it's, I'm not going to really leave my personality on it. It's me adhering to somebody else's. I really burned out and I swore I was like, okay, I'll finally go follow my dream of trying to be an actor because that's all I ever wanted to do anyways. And I swore that I would contribute my, my sensibility and personality to it and that I would do it my way 
mm-hmm. and that if I couldn't do it the way that other people were teaching me, I would try to take in with as much humility as possible everything they were saying. And if something didn't work, well, then I'd just bullshit them and make them think that it did because I wasn't going to let anybody tell me I wasn't doing something right. Mm-hmm. Again, but when I saw it, I was like, nobody's this thing that I'm looking at right now. I've never seen anybody do the way that Adam shot the beginning of that movie and the way that it looked and the performances were so untrained and raw and also supernatural mm-hmm. uh, not, not supernatural like the show. Like, sure. Sure. Very, very, very real. I haven't seen anything like this. And this is so strange that people whose brain works like mine will be into this. Mm hmm. And that was a me doing one for me. I haven't done anything like this. I haven't seen anything like this. Checks off all the boxes other than pay. And what's Mm. funny about that one is, and I'm really proud of what we did with that one. And it never came out and it will never come out. We started off with, we started shooting and there was nothing. Literally had no script. All we knew was that I was going to knock on a door. We were in Birmingham. We took a trip to Walmart. Mm-hmm. Started looking for wardrobe before we knew a character or anything. So that was a like choose your own adventure. Well, okay, so what do you want to do? And like, uh-huh. where do you want to go with this? And that was the one thing that I've ever done that would fit into the concept that the stereotype of mumblecore because well, the way people think that it is. We completely created it together there. You never know which ones you're going to... I did not. I would not have expected that about your next. Really? Really, I, I, I wouldn't have. Because, you know, that one was the one that was more like... I felt so bad for Barbara and Rob Moran, who played my parents on that. And mm-hmm. I just like saying Barbara Crampton's my friend. She's like yeah. my guru. She's my like, spiritual... Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's great. If we're, if we're talking in terms of 12 steps, Barbara Crampton is my higher power. <laughs> um, I felt horrible for both of them mm-hmm. because... There was only one day scheduled for this dinner scene. I also felt terribly for Sharni because there are a group of us in there that are improv performers. Right. And I started to relearn on A Horrible Way to Die that improv is not a dirty word, Um, which doesn't mean I still will not deviate from the script if I have the option not to. But on your next, we knew that there was this dinner scene that was going to go way off the rails. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I ever said to Keith Calder... um, and Jess, the producers on it, I was like, you guys probably needed to schedule a couple more days for that dinner scene because it's going gonna, it's gonna to get messy. Mm-hmm. It's going to get longer before it gets shorter. And poor Rob and Barbara weren't used to this, again, shorthand that we all have, which is like, we just start going. Did they know that this group of actors had known each other for a while and had been working with each other? Um, I think they had a, a rough idea, but they certainly got learned mm-hmm. to it real quick okay. once we were shooting that dinner <laughs> sequence. Um, you know, and they, and they went to karaoke with us. They were great sports, but but I felt terrible for them because it's just uh-huh. you know they would start talking and then Joe and I would just start yelling at each other and that would last like fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think of when I think of your next. I couldn't really see how that would be something that other people would want to watch. So I was really surprised because yeah. I had that happen before. Signal was a fifty thousand dollar movie that we sold for sold in just America for two point three million. Okay, that was back before VOD so prices were still up for acquisitions now you're lucky to get your budget back if it's a $250,000 movie no one's spending more than that wow. um, so you're next there was this idea of this there was this bidding war and this and that but I think it was really more of like a break-even scenario it made okay. it sound like it was a huge purchase but that's just the way that that stuff goes on Twitter and in the trades. It did better than I thought that it would theatrically. I guess I was the only one that had no hopes of it beating an Oprah Winfrey movie. But we went up against the butler and we got our asses kicked. <laughs> um, <laughs> the other time that we worked together was because uh, they had figured out that I can learn a lot of dialogue uh, mm. at one time. Which is why Simon put that speech in your next at the end. And mm. they're like, oh, AJ will do it. Uh-huh. I was like... 
It's an eight-page monologue, man. Like, sure. Because <laughs> I was the guy in the crew that was like had a background in stage. Sure. And you won't deviate, too, so that makes it... Well, I, I had <laughs> deviated so far in A Horrible Way to Die, uh-huh. I felt like I owed Simon, and I told him, I was like, I'm going to say everything verbatim what you wrote. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I went back to him right before we shot it, and I was like, okay, so I'm going to do that, but I actually added some things. It's so absurd, so what do you think? And I, and I ran him by him, and he was like, yeah, do it. And that's how that monologue ended up. So I actually made it a little bit longer and added some <laughs> comedy to it because uh-huh. I was like, if I don't say what about an engagement, then maybe I feel like we're missing that moment in the theater where someone goes, Oh that hell no. Yeah. Oh my and God. So I, I love like, that. Cause it's so, it's so absurd. Well, that's what I was saying. I was like, <laughs> yeah. this is an absurd monologue. He's trying yeah. to convince this girl why he had to kill his mom. Yeah. And I was like, that's so, this guy's so fucking out of his mind. Right. Let's really go for it. You know, instead of getting like, let's instead of doing ninety percent, let's really go for it, so mm-hmm. that people can go. This, oh hell no, yeah. You know, I think that was the audience reaction. It was <laughs> when we were at South by, and also it seemed to be in both a horrible way to die and in your next. I have at the end of each movie just a ridiculous amount of expositional dialogue, mm. where okay. it's yeah. almost like a French scene. You know, like I walk in and I'm like, "Hello, everyone who wasn't paying attention. This is what the movie's about, mm. and this is what happened, and this is the subtext." Come on, Dave. You do know how broke we are, right? You would have killed me. No. That was never supposed to happen. Even if you hadn't meant to kill me, you must have known I could have died. No. You were supposed to be the witness. A person with a clean record that could attest that our family and neighbors had been murdered by unknown lunatics. It was, in fact, a very important part of my plan that you be unharmed. So I did that when I walked into the cabin on A Horrible Way to Die. And then on your next, I did eight pages of it. This is what I did. This is why I did it. And then this is how I feel about this and that. And this is what you should have picked up right, right now. It's sort of like a recap, right. you know, like a highlights of the movie kind of speech that I give. In the hall with the revolver. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because I told, like, before we started shooting that, I was like, I don't know how to, I don't, it didn't read funny in the script at all. The movie didn't huh. at all. It okay. read very straight. And uh, I saw the way we were all dressed. And I leaned over to Joe and I was like, you know, I feel like the only way to do this is to treat it like Clue. <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, yeah, I don't know. And so I leaned over to Simon and I was like, Simon, I feel like the only way to do this is like Clue. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? And he goes, ah, go for it. <laughs> and so we kind of all had the powwow of the actors. We were like, or the, those of us that had worked together before mm-hmm. that didn't have to actually do too much on the movie like Sharni did with like kicking everyone's ass. Okay. The rest of us were like, we're going to play this because she was dressed like a regular human being. The rest of us were dressed like douches. Right. So we're like, <laughs> rich kid douches. That's one of my favorite uh, Joe roles, I would say. I love Joe he in that. I love Joe in that. Hilarious I the whole time. I <laughs> love so much. And that was the thing that I, I was like, people are going to, people are going to love Joe in this because people don't realize how good of a performer he is. Yeah. Um, so, they called me after they had done test screenings of the guest mm-hmm. and people were confused about some of the plot mm-hmm. because originally in that movie, the first time that you see uh, Lance Reddick's character is at the end of the movie when he shows up mm-hmm. at the house and David starts killing all of them. Okay. Um, and they were test audiences were confused about the military subplot. So, um, he called her always has budgeted reshoots. He thinks they're an essential part. And, and I agree with him. Like, sure. That's just part of the budget. Like he's planning on going back in and tinkering with it again. Mm-hmm. And so they had that already ready on the guest and they were like, well, we need some expositional dialogue to explain what's been going on off camera here. And so they had you on speed dial. And- so they called, yeah, they called yeah. me and they were like, <laughs> we have this, uh, we have two days on this movie. 
uh, for reshoots. They knew I was a huge fan of Fringe. They also knew that I was not keen on on really like doing like cameos because I like having the pressure and responsibility of carrying a picture. Okay. Like I like the workflow on it. It's something I'm comfortable with. I like the responsibility on set. I like the responsibility of knowing that if I don't do my job and the movie's fucked, it's hard for me to plug into a narrative or a character if I'm just there for it. So okay. they knew that that's how I felt about that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so they, they were like, uh, your scenes would be you talking to Lance Reddick. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll be there. Let me know when. Because I've loved French so much. Uh-huh. Um, and so when I got there, I, re- I, I didn't even realize it while we were shooting. It wasn't until reviews started coming out of the movie where, with some of these uh, journalists that I know from festivals that were like, and there's A.J. Bowen with the expositional monologue. And I didn't realize that that's mm-hmm. what they had done to me. <laughs> and that it was sort of an in-joke. There's this thing when you're working in independent micro-budget film. Mm-hmm. And this weird whatever genre I do, which people call like elevated indie genre or some shit art Ooh, films or that's whatever. That's a lot of icons right there. Exactly. You typically find a new voice that needs your help. You know, like Wingard needed my help mm-hmm. on A Horrible Way to Die. And I really believed in that, what I saw of his work up until then. Mm-hmm. And so you go advocate. My version of advocating is going and working on their movie. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of like my buddy Jeremy Gardner, it's telling everyone that I know to go watch The Battery mm-hmm. because I love it. And so what happens is, is you work on something and, and some people like it and they give the director or the producers of the movie money to make another one. But they don't, you know, like as an actor, there's no, that's usually pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And so when the budgets go up, or when people sign with CAA or WME, they start casting those things in-house for foreign sales, pre-sales. Mm-hmm. And uh, they start getting name brand talent sure, attached. Sure, it starts becoming a and spreadsheet. So, yeah, so what ends up happening is, is you work with these filmmakers a few times, but then, you know, they kind of move on. Mm-hmm. And as an actor, you kind of don't. I knew that there would come a time when that collaboration would end with those guys. Okay. Um, so now it's actually almost a relief because I get to just be fans of their work and watch. You know, like I get to go watch Blair Witch and mm-hmm. and know that I don't know anything about it. You know, I have no idea what I'm going to see when I watch it. So I uh-huh. get to just go experience their movie. I kind of, I've always said that I wish that was the case with House of the Devil because I'm such a huge fan of the movie mm-hmm. that it takes me out of it the three or four times that I pop up in it. Right. You know, because right. I just love Jocelyn's work and I love Jade Healy's production design. I love Ty's writing and direction. That I love that movie. And when I'm in it, it gets in the way for me. But I also knew when we made The Sacrament that this was probably going to be it, which was four years ago now. I'm probably not going to work with these guys again. I was just aware of it. You know, I knew Joe's movies were getting... Everybody was at like CAA or WME at that point but me. And mm. also I was the only non-hyphenate... Um, in the crew. I was behind the scenes, but in terms of getting the credit, sure. um, I wasn't. And so I was the guy that was just the actor in that group of people. And I knew Amy, I knew Amy was blowing up. I knew Joe was blowing up. I knew that Ty was blowing up. And so I took a lot of time on the sacrament to just kind of try to enjoy working with these guys. Cause I was like, huh. there's always a cycle. Yeah, you yeah. Know? So I was like, this probably isn't going to happen again. And it was four years ago, and it hasn't. It's surprising to me to, to hear that, I guess, because of the many things that I've seen you in, The Sacrament is, I think, genuinely one of the best performances that you've Thank done. you so much. I think a lot of people didn't understand what we were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Like, if you just go on IMDb, and see yeah. people say, why didn't they credit Jonestown? I'm like, credit a tragedy. Yeah. Like, we were, we thought every, because of our age, we're all almost 40, we thought everybody knew about Jonestown. Sure. And we were really trying to make a social statement 
about modern journalism mm-hmm. and like how we get our information um, and and questioning the validity of that you know like questioning mm-hmm. the ethics behind it like now that journalism is actually entertainment and vice versa you know where there's yeah like very blurred line for, yeah so for us instead of making a period film we wanted to make like do a modern telling of it and we had both sworn up and down that we were never going to do a found footage movie and I had said it in print like many times and then Ty told me I was like god damn it I'm going to be in a found footage movie he goes no it's going to be a documentary but it's going to be a fake documentary and I was like like a mockumentary he goes no that sounds like a Christopher Guest movie this is not funny that's sort of where the vice thing came in you know Mm -hmm. it was like these guys we had to answer a few narrative questions to be able to earn it so I don't even get into arguments with people about anything that I work on at all I don't comment on it where it's like oh where was the other camera and I was like no this they're the it's actually complete. We didn't cheat. Everything is earned in that. You know, mm. like there isn't a sh- an extra shot. We and part of the reason is we literally only shot on the two cameras that you see in the movie. There was no way to shoot extra coverage. So mm. that one was the one for me that was sort of like the culminating experience of that three or four year window of mm. the, working with those guys. And I was really grateful for that opportunity and really loved that movie. Like mm. you, I'm lucky. Like. I've been fortunate to work with some really talented people. So more than not, the, I think the movies that I've worked on are have some value behind them, you know, or I would watch them if I wasn't in them. Right. This is, feels like a really complex story. Like there's a lot of subtext. There's a lot, there's a lot of intent behind what we're doing and, mm-hmm. and, and everybody from grip and electric all down and up and front and behind was just so good at their jobs. It was just a joy. The worst thing I think that we can do as people that love movies is to shit on what people like. Okay. I don't want somebody that watches a movie to feel foolish. And I'm not talking about the stuff that I've done. Mm. If somebody's into something, then they should be able to be into that. And they should be able to get to have a conversation without someone reductively shitting on them the way that people do on Twitter, Mm. and social media these days about their opinion with such authority as though there's a universal truth to what's good and bad. Film criticism used to be criticism in an academic sense of the word. And it's not anymore. Now it's like you go to a website and they tell you that you're a fucking idiot if you like something that they don't think is cool. Or someone will try to educate you. Mm. And your point is like, you don't need to be educated about what you like. And you don't need to be made to feel foolish for what you're into. I certainly refuse to feel any sense of guilt or shame about what I'm into. You know, someone can try. Like I, my wife and I went to see don't breathe this weekend because Fede is a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And it was the first trailer for a horror film in a long time that either of us had seen that made us go, Oh, I'm kind of interested in seeing that. I mentioned to a friend of mine, like, so what'd you think about it? I was like, well, it's the first movie that stressed me out the way a horror movie does um, since 2003. Everything that I watched between then and now, I could really be into, with the exception of one movie that really stressed me the fuck out, which I thought was the best horror film of the past decade, the black and white version of The Mist. Because I grew up in the South, and when people are like, Marsha Gay Harden's character in that, completely unrealistic, I'm like, no, 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 I went to church with a lot of women. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly what would happen yeah. in Marietta, Georgia. Um, that's the first thing that would happen in Marietta, Georgia. And then I'd be the guy getting stabbed. You know, as someone who, I don't need to qualify my sense of taste or my interest when it comes to genre. And you shouldn't have to, nobody should have to. But sometimes I will find myself sounding contrarian because I want to make sure that people know that... They shouldn't be fucking embarrassed. I'm friends with Tom Holland, and I don't like Fright Night. I never did. 
as a kid, it just, it didn't work for me. Does that mean that I'm right and the overwhelming majority of people my age that have seen it that love it are wrong? Absolutely not. Neither of us are right. Neither of us are wrong. It's just Mm -hmm. about taste. It just wasn't my thing. I did, however, love the remake and I got endless shit about that for years because I was like, I really liked it. Yes, of course there's problems. There's weird CGI vampire face, but like there's some things that are earned that weren't earned in the original, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of story. And I felt exactly the same way about the Chainsaw remake. Which one? <laughs> the the, the uh, Nispel, the Marcus Nispel, the, fir- the first. Okay. Not, not Chainsaw 2, not Leatherface, not a new, not the beginning. Um, not the 3D one that came out. That one's interesting in its own Dr. Giggles way, that. though. You okay. haven't seen it? I haven't seen that. There's this is weird thing where mm-hmm. you think you're watching a period film, you think it's set in the 90s because the way they're dressed, okay. and then people start pulling out cell phones. So what it seemed like is that at first they had this courage of intent. They were like, we're going to make this movie set in 93. Okay. And then halfway through, they're like, we don't know how to get this information across. And plus, the producers are stressing us out. So we need to put some new music in, some new metal, and we need mm. to get cell phones in there because they're all dressed like straight up. 1993, real world, real world Los Angeles. I loved the Marcus Nispel Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I needed meaning behind stuff that happens. And the original Chainsaw, I'd already seen so many horror movies at that point that it didn't scare me. And I also wasn't aware how I felt about nihilism because I didn't know what it was when I saw it. But there was a disconnect for me with that movie. Mm -hmm. I kept going, why don't they leave? None of this has to happen if they just leave. I'm aware that that is one of the greatest horror films ever made. I'm mm. not trying to say that it isn't. But what I'm trying to say is that I had no emotional connection to it. It didn't scare me in any way because I wasn't invested in anything. Because mm. the way my brain's wired, I was just like, why? Why? That annoying kid that just kept asking why. So when I saw the Chainsaw remake, and there's a very simple conceit where this girl blows her brains out while they're all in the van. Right. That one little thing, the way my brain works, made everything scary because they had no ability to get up and leave after that. Mm. They were forced in this position. And they were for the most part, people that would choose to not be. So I didn't think they were idiots. Okay. I don't like watching idiots get murdered unless you're talking about Terry Kaiser in New Blood. Unless you're talking about Weekend at Bernie's in the New Blood, which I saw in theaters. <laughs> I saw it. That was the first time I saw a crowd cheer mm. in a horror film. I snuck into it with my buddy. And when uh, Jason, when Kane comes out with that fucking weed whacker mm-hmm. and Weekend at Bernie's goes cross-eyed, everyone's just like, yeah, fuck yeah. It's like the power of cinema to change the world. I gotta get involved with this. That was the first half of our A.J. Bowen interview. He had so much to say about filmmaking that we decided to spread it out into our first two-part episode. Be sure to tune in for the next one. We talk about comedians in horror, why A.J. wants to make 80s movies, and much more. At the Point of a Knife was created and hosted by me, Eric Navaretti, and produced by Renee Amador. At the Point of a Knife is an Automaton Creative production. For more of our work, visit our new site, automatoncreative.com. Logo and title designed by Jonathan B. Perez. For more of his work, check out jonathanbperez.com. Be sure to follow the show on Facebook and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. And help more people find the show by leaving us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.